0: I grew up in a row house and um, by looking out the back door or looking out across the street where you you could see just sort of massively different socioeconomic circumstances. As you sort of go towards the proverbial railroad tracks, um, always had to get ready to get your dukes up, uh, you know, you go across the tracks.
1: What's good? I'm Nikisha Elise Williams, and this is Black and Published, bringing you the journeys of writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. Today's guest is Lawrence Jackson, author of the book, Shelter, a black tale of homeland Baltimore. As a Be More native, Lawrence maps his beginnings from a row house in a predominantly black working class neighborhood to owning a piece of the American dream where he raises his two sons in a city ripped apart by the wages of racism and violence.
0: I'm living here in Baltimore. I'm raising, raising these guys. And, uh, you know, we've got a, um, a mortality here or a possibility of mortality that is, you know, it's outrageous by any, any global standard, right? Um, let alone the standard of a, of a country with the highest standard of living or one of the highest standards of living, right? We've got a standard of dying here.
1: In shelter, Lawrence uses a historical lens to compare his present with the past and excavate faith, fatherhood, and home ownership. As an English professor and biographer, he explains the importance of acknowledging from whence you came, as you grow. How he used writing to work out his rage. And why he thinks the fire next time is overrated. That and more when Black and Published continues. You ready? (laughs) All right, Lawrence. So my first question for you today is, when did you know that you were a writer?
0: I don't think anybody's ever asked me that. Um, I started to keep a diary in high school, and uh, mainly boy-girl stuff, struggles with the parents, and um, uh, attempting to develop my own identity. But um, I certainly could see the value of writing as a place of solitude and self-reflection that was really valuable. Um, When I was in college, a very good friend of mine was murdered. Um, He was a student at Morehouse. I was a student at Wesleyan University. And um, it was, you know, incredibly traumatic for for me personally, for his family, for all of our families. I mean, we came from a community. But um, what I couldn't get over was the way that – these um, narratives about uh, young Black men were so powerful that they seemed to stand in the way of um, achieving justice or even pursuing justice, in fact. Um, It was through writing that, um, especially the writer Ralph Ellison, reading writers and then doing my own writing, that I was able to sort of you know, find a place to um, to make a stand, I guess, um, so that you wouldn't be just sort of walking around enraged all of the time at the um, the contradiction of your existence and experience, and um, so that you could begin to generate some solutions first at the individual level, and then um, maybe moving out into uh, broader interventions.
1: So, do you think it was the murder of your friend? that then led you to try to find a place for your rage that then led to your writing?
0: Um, I would say it was, it was a number of experiences. Again, some of them um, very sad. Around the same time, I lost my father. And um, again, the, the personal injury or the personal wound is sort of one thing, but then also like losing the history that he represented. Um, my father passed away before I had enough consciousness about, let's say, Black history. And we talked about Black history, but in a, a global sense. But to ask him about you know, our own family history in some ways. My father's father was born in slavery. and But that's something that we never talked about. And my dad was of the generation of people who were just sort of beginning to understand that that was not something that was shameful. That was something that should have been a Place of encouragement and a place of um, really pride that uh, we were descendants of people who survived enslavement. But I, I would say you know um, that, and um, <clears throat> trying to figure out what I would do for um, for a career. Uh, I knew that I didn't want to be an attorney. I worked um, at the state's attorney's office in Baltimore, and. Um, Thinking about how uh, the history and literature of um, Black people could be kind of a, a liberatory or an emancipationist tool.
1: So then how did your writing voice take shape? You talk about understanding Black history, personal tragedies, you know, finding your your place and your function of rage on the page. So how did that all take take shape for you for you to begin your writing career and begin to write your books?
0: Um, It began with a series of these elegies uh, to my hometown, you know, that is uh, featured on like these television programs that um, I'm thinking specifically of something like the wire, which certainly capture a portion of, you know, um, what's taking place here in Baltimore. But for the most part, they're not written by African-Americans and I wanted to uh, record um, the 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 beauty and the struggle of people who um, whose lives were lost, you know, so my friend Donald Bentley, and then another good friend of mine, Chris Shelton, um, who both uh, uh, passed away uh, tragically. and uh, these these notes about the ceremonies of their passing, the ceremonies and rituals of our upbringing were at the center of what I tried to do as a writer. So I wrote one piece uh, really for Donald called "Slickheads," and that one's in Black Vernacular or, you know, my my attempt or approach to uh, Black Vernacular from Baltimore beyond what I saw as certain stereotypes about uh, Black speech or Black Vernacular. And then the other piece, um, you know, like for Chris, which is called uh, Christmas in Baltimore, which is really just about a home ceremony, about his funeral. And then he's uh resting at a um at a cemetery that we used to go to after you know big dances. We would uh you know <laughs> make our own after party um you know sort of in these secluded places in the suburban parts and talk about his home going there. Um, but again, just efforts to commemorate to re-inhabit the lives of people who were being, I felt, uh, unfairly pushed into stereotypes.
1: So in writing those elegies for your two friends and, you know, excavating what their lived humanity meant in contrast to the stereotypes that abounded about Black people and black people in Baltimore specifically. Was that where the first inklings of shelter started?
0: Shelter um, is another kind of project. I mean, I think like a lot of uh, African American writers, you know, you're always sort of in search of an audience. There's certainly a uh, a public conversation that things are quite different. At, at this point, than they were twenty years ago, and, and it may it may be true. It, it, and I certainly uh, would hope to see uh, more people discover their voices and you know write their books and feel good about the work that they do. Um, but I would I, I would say like with the book Shelter, which is really um, seven essays um, dealing with um, the the topic of of home ownership, fatherhood. Um, and I would say faith more so than, than organized religion, though it is very specifically about organized religion in a certain way. And then also, you know, sort of folding in parts of, of African-American history and American national history, but especially the way that American national history is always fully embedded in enslavement of people of African descent. So in in that way, i would i would say that this is a a, a work that um i hope w- would participate in a um maybe even a broader conversation about um uh what the ambitions are for black people moving from one class to another class and 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 really what what they used to say in the catcher of the rye you know the uh, the ring what the, the, the fulfillment really is, you know, is it the, the dream of home I mean, I think uh, Brother ta Coates writes very movingly about the, the way that that dream can be crushed and uh, the way that every generation, you know, has sort of been stymied in this attempt. And in my own family, I represent the first generation I make the best investment with the best school, uh, closest to work, um, you know, the, the best for your dollar. And, uh, so the book is also, you know, sort of like deeply engaged with that, with that problem, because as you can imagine, you know, you sacrifice a great deal, but the book is, is, is definitely, you know, it's like a full on wrestling match. I was, I was on the wrestling team in high school and college. It's a full on wrestling match with, you know, the, the dynamic, the problem, what we would say, the predicament in, um cultural studies or historical studies, the predicament of pursuing your economic interest when they're always cut against so sharply your your social and historical interest, you know, um, and what does that mean to be an American or to be living in America and to constantly be making choices about that. One of my favorite anecdotes about this problem is when I was a teacher in West Africa in uh, Côte d'Ivoire in 2013 and 2014. And I was coming, leaving the university with a colleague and I said to him, hey man, let's just stop and have a beer. And, you know, he just, I mean, he just immediately just pulled the car off the road and pulled up beside a cafe and we got out and there was some music in the background we sat down at the table and, you know, we just had a couple of beers and watched the crowd go by and, you know, we made the various comments, you know, we people watched and, you know, we were having very light conversation and we got back in the car and we, Went to, um, went to the house. But it was fascinating to me because I said to him, like, to be a Black American and to do the same thing in the United States, you're making all of these sort of calculations um, that are, it's just, it, it changes the experience totally. You know, I was living in um, Boisquet and Cote d'Ivoire where they recently had civil war and you could see the remnants of the of the civil war. But nonetheless, I would just, you know, the thing I was trying to convey to my friend was that the feeling is so different and wouldn't it be great to be able to have, um, you know, this uh, this feeling um, again—a certain kind of of uh, uh, casual acceptance, uh, bedrock assumptions, a feeling of belonging, um, a, f- a feeling of of rightness—and then, you know, there was also the aesthetic component. I mean, there's an inner joy and satisfaction that comes with being able to really sort of enjoy. One's own, one's own people. Um, it was an interesting contrast that's always stayed with me, and so I'm always sort of looking for that place where you can, without so much, so much work, without so much performance, where you can enjoy black being, black culture, black life.
1: So then, in noting that contrast from Baltimore to Cote d'Ivoire, and distilling that experience down. To and shelter with those seven essays. Was this the first of your non academic works that you wanted to try to find its audience and put out there?
0: There's an interesting or another story about the creation of shelter, which was originally contracted as a collection of previously published essays. And when I was thinking about what I would really like to do or really like to say, that's when sort of the new work. Uh, came about, or you know, decided to to um, move in another direction, and to link together all of the experiences about you know sort of homecoming in Baltimore. The book, you know, is is also trying to address centrally the question, you know, what is the obligation or the responsibility of the person from a, a community who then, you know, has the opportunity to return as a person who has access to resources that the community might have. Historically, but had withheld. So, that's a a, a, a real pursuit of the um, of the collected essays.
1: So then, in talking about community and the responsibility to community and the dichotomy of community in shelter. Mm-hmm. Let's get to the book. So, if you could read something from shelter to kind of ground the audience, and then we'll dive back into the conversation. All right, Black and Publish family, before we get to the reading, a little bit more about Lawrence's book, Shelter. As he mentioned, the book is a collection of seven essays on home ownership, fatherhood, and faith. But he also wrestles with classism and racism and how that plays out in his own life, going from his roots in a row house into how he's moved on up. All right, here's Lawrence.
0: This is page 273. Ordinary Time, the Gentle Brushing Fescue. When the children were born, I would make up word games that could add an air of mystery and intrigue to our family's distant past. My own parents had done the same with me. My father groomed us with a family named Jingle that was popular during the second Eisenhower campaign. Whenever there was enough wet snow in the alley at 58 to take out the old flexible flyer, he would sing the jingle to my sister and me along with the choral music he'd learned in college, Ivor Chavernau and Richard Kunz's The Sleigh. To my mind, his caroling was an ornament inseparable from the heraldry he had begun to devise for our family, half installation art, half portraiture. He was amused by a twin mammy salt and pepper shaker made of green plastic that found its way to our kitchen table, then the shelf over the sink, then the rail heading down to the finished basement. He fashioned two or three poster-sized Nubian paintings of mother and child, a black and white canvas hung atop the mantle of our faux fireplace. One painted on an orange piece of plywood covered the window of the garage. These crests were mysterious to me, but an indelible part of him. His preoccupations were revived when I bought my first house, which I wanted to name in honor of Nanny or Cujo or call Negro Hill or African Hill, not quite having the required hubris for Jackson Hall or Jackson Moore. Remembering a placard I had seen in St. Augustine, I settled on Seminole Hill, but I couldn't single-handedly infuse the children's memories with the term and it took more than a little for me to dredge up that name myself. In the same way that African flight to St. Augustine and the etymology of Seminole are brushed over spots of the Southeast black story, none of my children today recall baptizing our house. Really, they showed only faint interest in the fantasies of heraldry. It was not at all like the brow of a soft and gentle eminence from the patriarchal romance stories. I console myself by flying from the porch the same Maryland colonial flag I saw at White Church, the kind of ensign that Matthias D'Souza, a Black colonist aboard the Ark in 1633, might have seen billowing in the wind.
1: Thank you for starting with that section, which brings the story of your home and where you are to a conclusion. So as I was reading the book and diving in, I noticed when you say on page 16, I grew up on a city block with 10 households, Albion Road seems the epitome of pastoral. Why was it so important for you to draw that stark difference between the Baltimore of your youth with the Baltimore of your adulthood? in letting people know that where you are now is far and away different from where you started.
0: Well, they say that that's the way that we understand anything is through comparison and ultimately through contrast is what gives us the distinction. And um, I probably would have made the contrast more sharply. But, um, you know, my mother, lives in the house that I grew up in, I'm sure she would have uh, disapproved of that uh, very heartily. And this is part of the, um, the I, I, you know, I think it's a part of the, the complexity of, I, I hope, what I have been able to achieve, but certainly what I was after is that, you know, I grew up in a row house. To grow up in my household was to have a, a certain idea about what it meant to be a middle class black person and then as the world enlarged um you know i had to put that definition uh, up against many others now again i didn't know so many other black people who had much more than we did but i i did know that they were there but there, there is no sharper contrast in the city in, in you know in baltimore is an old city in both ways, like old as in ancient and old as in it still preserves the old ways. <laughs> you could get part of this contrast, like in the house that I grew up in, by looking out the back door or looking out across the street where you you could see, you know, separated by, I don't know, 50 feet, you know, just sort of massively different socioeconomic circumstances, um, you know, where we're like on the border block between a solidly middle class in many standalone homes and a, what we thought of as an upper working class, but anyway, a working class or upper working class in increasingly regimented, more tightly spaced, fewer ornaments, you know, as you sort of go towards the proverbial railroad tracks. Um, Always had to get ready to get your dukes up, Uh, you know, you go across the tracks. And then of course, you know, I mean, Homeland is in, in Baltimore, still very close to its origins, you know, it's not a plantation per se, but I mean, this was the, the plantation manner of one of the longest serving politicians in the region and the person who crafted the maps, the language for property rights in the city and in the county for multiple successive generations. So, you know, you can sort of, you know, I mean, one expansion neighborhood uh, where you have African American migrants who are, you know, every generation, 1930, 1950, 1960, 65 is when my parents bought their house, um, trying to move against the segregation red line and all of the um, the economic disasters that perpetuated segregation, you know, will be following or at the heels or anticipating these black migrants. And then the contrast is with Homeland, where you know, you've had, in, in a sense, sort of the same kind of wealth and privilege preserved now for, you know, three centuries.
1: So then in talking about. You didn't use this word, but it's the word that comes to mind, escaping the socioeconomic status that you were born into um, for that of a higher class. You have a line that stood out to me that says a life of humble service was like a sentence. Do you mean that in like, because at first I was like, like a prison sentence, Mm. or do you mean that because it's like a sentence in that there is no movement there similar to a prison sentence, like your growth or development is just stunted? Is that why you believe that, you know, in Black families, Black households specifically, that there's always this, um, I guess this- Not so much inertia, but you know this preaching that you know you've got to do better, you've got to be better, you've got to move up, or there will be inertia,
0: or you fall, or fall. Well, I would say, or you fall back. Yeah, that's that's the uh, that's the fatherhood side of this, right? The the work it has a uh, an investment in you know what what can be passed on to the next generation. And, you know, I have the great fortune of, um, you know, raising the two sons uh, right now. And um, this thing about, you know, what can I convey to them? Um, I would like to convey material foundation to them, if that's possible. But uh, mainly I want to convey a belief system. And, of course, (laughs) the belief system is... In it, not so distinguishable in some of the reductionist terms from an upward mobility narrative, and so you have to insist to them that you this is not the plateau for you, you want to keep um, pushing and striving and breaking barriers. But it's as difficult for me as it was for my parents, without a doubt. You know, how do you uh, emphasize the contrast between the experience that they have and an experience that? could possibly be more desirable or or more fruitful, um, a greater level of achievement. So that's a that's a condition that all parents face, but it is an especially acute one for the black parent. The thing, right, that you can never get over or never get past, like everybody keeps trying to repeat the fire next time, you know, the opening essay, James Baldwin, Letter to My Nephew, right? And few people are asking the question, well, what happened to his nephew or why was he writing to his nephew at 15? Mm. And then you think about it a little bit more. And you say, "Well, you know, it, he probably felt like I needed to intervene because, hey, you know, maybe something's going to happen to James." And then you know, it's sort of like James falls off the radar, falls off the map. So that's not an acceptable um, conclusion for me, right? I I, 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 I don't know. I mean, again, I've known families that've gone through, you know, sort of this this pain. <laughs> this pain of of losing the generation and uh uh that's the reason why you need faith right you got to have faith but um uh even even um notwithstanding the um the the possibility, and you know, I'm living here in Baltimore. I'm raising raising these guys, and uh, you know, we've got a mortality here, or a possibility of mortality that is, you know, it's outrageous by any any global standard, right? Um, let alone the standard of a of a country with a um, this the highest standard of living or one of the highest standards of living, right? We've got a standard of dying here, but um, sort of even putting that sort of problem aside you you're looking for new ways to invigorate the desire of the next generation to to go forward. And um, for me in this one, it's definitely, you know, the house and um, and neighborhood.
1: Yes. Another thing I notice in Shelter and how you have the essay set up is the use of the liturgical calendar. And you also talk about, you know, the seven essays being about. Home ownership faith and fatherhood so what role has your faith played in your understanding of home as well as in your writing
0: thank you so much for the question um faith is ritual and ceremony it's a practice or a practical thing and it's a way that I keep um, revitalizing and revisiting familial connections it's a it's a way for me to get at the the length, depth, and breadth of ancestry, and then also to project it forward and to have some um, optimistic uh, uh, expectations about the future. And of course, you know, you can sort of boil it down to trying to get young people in the car on Sunday morning for church, which also can be sort of just me getting myself in the car on Sunday morning for church and an obligatory ritual but i you know i try to show in a couple of places the immense um you know what for me you know it's just like an immense and incalculable um kind of a a, a, a payoff is is a um you know it's it's, it's with great sadness that i say um, payoff because i don't want to reduce it to you know sort of an economic function bonanza or payoff or you know whatever but it's just sort of this this place of of uh, joyful celebration. That's that. I guess if you had a certain kind of perspective or mentality, you know, you're anticipating this every Sunday. Um, I'm also a middle aged person, so I'm moving from Friday night and Saturday night to Sunday morning as uh, my place of regular uh, regular joy. Hopefully, we won't move too fast, or <laughs> hopefully, we still have some opportunities left. Because, in fact, I talk about that, you know, for me, um, so many transcendental moments out on the dance floor. Right. Uh, Definitely a place of sacrifice, discipline and humiliation. um, Definitely at certain stages. But um, also one of just, you know, just sort of amazing, joyful celebration. And music is uh, is spiritual, is rhythmic. But um, in any way you get the same dimensions or I receive so many of the same dimensions, through um, uh, religious worship.
1: I want to move into a speed round and a little game, and then I will let you go for the afternoon. So what is your favorite
0: book? Invisible Man comes to mind.
1: Who is your favorite author?
0: Um, I would, so I would say Chester Himes.
1: Who is your favorite character on The Wire?
0: I mean, the person who I'm repeating the most is definitely Marlowe. I mean, you know. Again, I would watch The Wire like it would just be Marlo and um and Avon Barksdale. I mean, those would be my favorite. I like I probably like Avon's single lines um the most, you know. But between Avon and uh and Marlo
1: You mentioned your time in Cote d'Ivoire and having that feeling of home. So, if money were no option, where would you go? What would you do? And where would you live and why?
0: Mm. Maybe maybe not one single place, but uh, certainly uh, Grand Bassam and Côte d'Ivoire, you know, they have there everything that <laughs> most people talk about what they would love to have or to be sort of surrounded by. I would love to be able to spend as much time as as I wanted to anywhere on the continent that I could go because I, I, I don't know anything about, you know, places like Marrakesh and Fez or um, Tunis or even Cairo and Alexandria or Moroey. I don't know anything about sort of that part of the world. I I feel like I, I'm a practicing black Christian, right? I would love to spend some time in Axum. And other parts of Ethiopia, these are the oldest black places of Christianity on planet Earth. And, you know, I mean, we should be we should be taking our cues from the Ethiopians, not from the English and the French. I mean, these are like the late converts, you know what I mean? Uh, So I would I would love to be able to. I would love to be able to live out there. I would like to kind of be able to to get to know Congo, Angola, Cameroon. And then, you know, uh, I had the, uh, the great fortune of being able to give some lectures uh, in Aloran and Kwara State in Nigeria years ago and visited the uh, holy place at Oshogbo, but um, Port Harcourt and Calabar, uh, the Ebo region is another destination for me because uh, the Igbo are the predominant group that went to Virginia and, you know, all my family, both sides of my family, everybody's from Virginia. So I would like to sort of see Ebo um, places up close. And
1: name three things on your bucket list.
0: I'm I'm definitely conscious of um, you, you know what you need your health for. So the I got two main things on the bucket list right now are like I I, I need to see these guys finish college. Um, so that would be kind of like one and two. <laughs> um I'd be I'd be pretty thankful for that. Um, And then, you know, maybe the third thing would be uh, I want to take a river trip from um, River Bay trip, but like from Annapolis, uh, we could go from Baltimore the Patapsco River in Baltimore to Washington, D.C. on the Potomac. I would like to explore the riverways of uh, the Chesapeake Bay and the Potomac River Basin.
1: That's different. (laughs) So my game for you is called Rewriting the Classics. What's the one book
0: you wish you would have written? It would be like either like The Black Jacobins by CLR James or How Europe Underdeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney.
1: What's one book where you want to change the ending and how would you do
0: it? Now these are these are these are real these are real stumpers. <laughs> um, something like either have Pilot live at the end of Song of Solomon or Uh, maybe maybe it would be like to have I don't know, it would be something like either have pilot live or to know that Milkman had had survived or something like that I'm drawn to the um, to the mythological fantastic endings of those two books by Tony Morrison, Song of Solomon and Tar Baby
1: Yes Sorry, I've been w- wondering about what happens at the end of Tar Baby, like what happened to him since yeah. I read the book.
0: <laughs> so I it do understand more the that. 400, right? You
1: know, yeah, so I actually talked about this with Robert Jones Jr. at the end of his book, The Prophets, and you don't actually know what happens to Isaiah. And then I was like, you know what? Toni Morrison taught me to stop wondering what happens. So I have to stop wondering what happens to Isaiah. Still not over it, Robert. <laughs> All right. My last question for rewriting the classics is name a book that you think is overrated or
0: overtaught and why? Mm, that's a, um, that's a tough question too, but, um, I might say for our own moment, I might say actually fire next time, which I was teaching yesterday <laughs> and, uh <laughs> Is you know it's a it's a it's a it's a magnificent it's a magnificent work, but I I I think that uh you know you shouldn't expect one text to carry so much weight between you know roughly the mid 30s through the mid 70s.
1: Got it, and so my final question for you today is once you are dead and gone and among the ancestors, what would you like? someone to write about the legacy of words and the body of work that
0: you've left behind. Mm. Could say the same thing, you know, the James Baldwin saying uh, a good man and honest writer. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. That's um, that's very reputable. Um, I'm constantly giving these uh, uh, talking about these epitaphs with uh, my children constantly. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great, um, it's a great pastime of ours. I keep the uh, spirituals in my wallet that I want to have in my uh, funeral service. (laughs) And, uh, you know, but one of them is um, uh, uh, lead me. uh, So it could be that, you know, lead me, guide me along the way. Lord, if you lead me, I will not stray. Lord, let me walk each day with thee. Lead me, oh Lord, lead me. Leave me. Thank you, Lawrence. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of fun. You're a great person. Um, thanks so much for inviting me on your show.
1: Big thank you to Lawrence Jackson for being here today on Black & Published. Make sure you check out Lawrence's latest book, Shelter, A Black Tale of Homeland, Baltimore. It's out right now, today, from Grey Wolf Press. That's our show for the week. If you like this episode and want more Black and Published, head to our Instagram page. It's at Black and Published, and that's B-L-K and Published. There, I've posted a bonus clip from my interview with Lawrence about how Baltimore was formed and informed by slavery, and how famous Baltimoreans now are finally changing the narrative about the city. Make sure you check it out and let me know what you think in the comments. Next week... Our guest will be Lola Akinmade-Ackerstrom, author of the novel In Every Mirror, She's Black. I'll highlight at y'all next week. Peace.